that uh, I regularly have people ask me about the girls and how they're doing with their mission trip. They have uh, completed their time in Mexico, and they uh, are in the process of traveling back to the mission base in Arkansas, and Lisa and I are going down next weekend to to be with them for their graduation and looking forward to seeing them again. And um, I know how much they appreciate your prayers and support. I've been thinking a lot about mission because my girls are uh, have been on this mission trip, and and of course they they grew up participating in missions on the Navajo reservation down in Utah, and. Uh, when you're on a mission trip like that, when you're working alongside people, it is a fantastic opportunity to, to really bond. You get to know people in a different way uh, when you're working side by side with them, when you have things to do, important things to do, projects to complete. You really get to know people uh, quite well, creates those deep, deep-seated bonds. Also, though, kind of reveals people for where they really are. Most of the people that I served with over the years, taking groups down to work with the Navajo, served admirably. They, they put the needs of others first. They put the needs of the mission first and the, and the community of people that we were there to serve, and they put the needs of the team around them first. And so everybody uh, was able to work together uh, quite well, but not everybody's on board all the time, and you also sort of see the extremes. So, for instance, we had a gentleman who had very severe heart condition and diabetes and was out in the hot sun digging ditches, and all of us were begging him to take a break, and he wouldn't do it. He said, this is what I'm here for. Uh, literally did not care if he died digging ditches uh, down on the Navajo Reservation. Uh, on the other hand, we had people who were more than happy to sort of walk around projects advising other people on how to do the work. We had some who felt like they really needed to be patted on the back for having taken vacation time off of work to come on mission trip. And we had other people who joyfully served on the mission, even though they had taken time off of work without pay. We had some who would go the extra mile. They would find some job, some task, some need that, that to which they were not assigned, and they would do it anyway as a, as a way of showing the love of Jesus to, their, to those that we were there to serve. And then you'd have others who would cut corners trying to get their assigned work done as quickly and easily as possible and then would plop down into a chair and would not be available to do any other work that day. Some embraced whatever task we gave them with great joy and great love. Others whined endlessly about how unfair it was they didn't get the job that they really wanted. And I wish that I was talking about the children on the mission trip, but I'm not. On the mission field, one of the great advantages 
One of the things that makes it such a special uh, experience and opportunity is that on the mission field, you're really removed from nearly all of your distractions. So there's very few things interfering with the work. And you have a deep clarity of purpose, particularly on a short-term mission trip because, because the tasks are usually well outlined. And so you know specifically what it is that, that you need to get accomplished in the brief time that you're there. And there's really not a lot of room for error. It's got to be done before we leave. When you come back home, all of those distractions flood back. And so one of the things that we would see from year to year is that when people were mission-minded while in the mission field, they would come home and still be mission-minded. More distracted, but still mission-minded. When people are not mission-minded in the mission field, they would come home and not only be distracted, but they're still not mission-minded, and a lot of times they disappear from Christian service, or they, in all honesty, sometimes become more of a burden on ministry than a help. This is uh, maybe given me a sense of what Jesus is speaking of in Matthew chapter 9 at the end of that chapter, starting with verse 35. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, I think probably every minister, every ministry leader has known this same sentiment at one time or another. There's plenty of work to do, and there's not that many workers. But do we ever ask why that is exactly? Matthew kind of offers himself as something of a case study. We need to understand that the Gospel of Matthew is apparently not in strict chronological order. So where he places things in the story can be very significant. He offers himself as the late bloomer among the disciples. He tells us way back in chapter 3 about the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus comes along and says, come follow me. They drop their nets and they follow him. This is the kind of calling that in ministry we like to imagine. We like to imagine, you put the word out, come and do this, we got this great opportunity, you're going to be able to serve, and people just are lined up. They're chomping at the, give me that form, I want to sign up right now. Matthew depicts himself as the late comer to the game. He doesn't get around to his own calling until chapter 9. And he says this, Jesus went, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, at first blush, this story sounds pretty much like the other calling stories. But there are some significant differences. There are some important things that we need to recognize about this. You know, for one... 
if it was odd to call four fishermen to be your disciples, it's really peculiar to be calling a tax collector to be one of your disciples. But setting that aside, look at where Matthew's calling is in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has preached the Sermon on the Mount. He has preached to the people about the law, and he has done so with authority. In other words, he has talked about the law, not as an interpreter of the law, not as a teacher of the law, but as a giver of the law. He talks about the law as one who understands the intent behind the law and can comment on it. He has performed countless healings demonstrating his authority over the human condition. He has cast out demons demonstrating his authority over the spirit world. He's calmed the sea demonstrating his authority over creation. And then he goes on to make the rather audacious claim that he has the authority to forgive sin, and in order to prove it, he heals a paralytic. All of these things have happened before the calling of Matthew. And I think that's significant. Because the question for Matthew is, will Jesus who clearly has authority over all things, will Jesus have authority over me? What we need to understand is that the authority of Jesus simply is. It exists. It's there, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether Matthew acknowledges it or not. People in, at this point in the gospel story, people may not have noticed it yet, but Jesus is the glory of God just walking around. He's the glory of God just walking around. He has this authority. We have to assume, and based on the authority he's already demonstrated at this point, and he hasn't been crowned with the final authority that God's going to give him, but just based on the authority that he demonstrates at this point in his ministry, we can assume that he's fully capable of commanding obedience from anyone. But he doesn't do that. And why doesn't he do that? Because God, from the very beginning, wants humanity to have the choice. God wants us to have the choice. Are we going to follow him? Are we going to come under his authority? His authority exists whether we come under it or not. And at the end of time, he's already told us that everyone will answer to this authority, whether they wanted to or not. But God consistently wants us to have the choice. Will we be his or not? Will we honor him? Will we love him? Will we follow him? Or will we honor, love, and follow ourselves? And he persists in giving us this choice, even though in every place, and every age, humanity has made the wrong choice. Matthew is a witness to all of these demonstrations of the authority of Jesus Christ, and yet it sort of takes him some time to really become a follower of Jesus. You see, to to be a follower of Jesus 
is to embrace his rightful lordship. You get that? His authority exists already. It exists whether or not we know it, whether or not we see it, whether or not we recognize or acknowledge it. His authority exists. But to become a follower of Jesus, I have to not only recognize it, but I have to submit myself to it. I have to embrace his rightful lordship. The earliest confession of faith among the very first Christians was Jesus is Lord. And this is not just an empty phrase. This is not just religious rhetoric. It is a declaration that I recognize that Jesus has authority over everything. He has the authority over creation. He has the authority over life. He has the authority over the natural world. He has authority over life and death. I recognize this authority, and I have been given a choice, and my choice is to also be under his authority. He is Lord. That's what that means. Matthew goes on in verse, uh, verse 10, says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Okay, a couple of important things here. First of all, sinners are welcomed with full compassion. That should not come as a surprise to us. That's one of the things that we know about Jesus, right? That he welcomes sinners with full compassion. What's interesting is that Matthew relates this in conjunction with his own calling, and he says not that Jesus has come to hang out with the sinners, he has come to call the sinners. In other words, this is the audience of his calling. And the calling is coming. There's a very important dynamic here that would be easy for us to miss. We need to understand that there is no contradiction between loving lost people and calling lost people to discipleship, calling them to kingdom and to righteousness. We often act as if there is a distinction there. I had uh, some sort of meme pop up in my social media feed this week, a post that was, uh, it was a picture of some graffiti on a wall. Love it when we try to communicate the higher truths of the, of the scriptures with graffiti. But uh, there was a post of graffiti on a wall, and the graffiti said, Jesus did not tell us to be right. He told us to be loving. Oh, that's such a nice sentiment. It's also baloney. Garbage. Complete garbage. And I know a lot of people read it and go, oh, yeah, Jesus supposed to be loving. Because that's, that's, that's the Jesus I know. Jesus also does, in fact, tell us to be righteous. He tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And he also tells us, love your neighbor. In fact, he tells us, even love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You see, there is no distinction in Jesus' mind 
between loving people and also calling them to something higher, calling them to something better. Jesus is not hanging out with redeemed people. He's not hanging out with ex-sinners. He's hanging out with sinners. And he loves them. But he's also there, by his own admission, to call them. He is there to call them. That call, that's a discipleship word. He is there to call them into a different life. Many of them will not be ready, but that's why he's there, to call them. They are not followers except for Matthew and, and the, the other disciples that are with Jesus, but Jesus loves them and Jesus calls them. And here's the thing, followers, followers of, of Jesus are expected to actually follow. Sounds kind of obvious, right? Why don't you need to make that point? Followers of Jesus, man, think you're so smart. Where's the wisdom in that? Well, maybe it is wise because Jesus seemed to feel like he needed to say the same thing. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you will deny yourself, you'll take up your cross, and you'll follow me. Why is it that that last part is so difficult? Well, maybe it's difficult because the first two parts are really difficult. Denying yourself and taking up your cross, those things are difficult. Most people will never get past those things in order to get to the part where we actually follow Jesus. But it's also difficult because we have treated following Jesus as a metaphor for something that isn't actually following Jesus. It's sort of a metaphor for religious activity, a metaphor for moral behavior. So basically following Jesus boils down to I go to church and I keep my nose clean. I try to be nice. And that's following Jesus. Understand that during Jesus' ministry, follow me is very often a literal sentiment. That's what we get from these stories. People drop their nets. Matthew drops his books. They follow. It is immediate and it is literal for them. But always, in every age, even for us today, follow means go and do as Jesus would go and do. It means be like him. Not love people or call people to obedience, but both. That's, that's the Great Commission. Jesus does, in fact, love you as you are, but his highest aspiration for you is as a follower, as his disciple. Now, what's weird about that is how demanding Jesus is in his definition of what it will mean to follow him. So if we back up to chapter 8, Jesus says, it says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake, and the teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, 
follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, this is actually a pretty difficult passage. It's so familiar that sometimes we sort of breeze past it. It's really sort of difficult to wrap our heads around what Jesus is saying here. But one thing that we can be sure of, Jesus is not particularly sympathetic to excuses. He's just not. There's, it's hard to get around the fact that Jesus is not particularly sympathetic to these excuses. Now, this is um, this business of burying my father. This can be a little bit confusing because it's kind of a Jewish idiom. It's not that dad's dead and I just want to go back and bury him. When this, when this potential disciple says, I want to I bury my father, he says, I'm going to stay at home until dad passes away and then I'll come follow you. Can I just make the point here that that's a pretty good reason? Like, that's a pretty good excuse as excuses go. I want to maintain this family obligation. I want to stay home while dad needs me. And, and when he passes, then I'll, I'll follow you with abandon. That is a pretty good excuse. And Jesus doesn't take it. Honestly, that is a better excuse than most of us in this room have right now. For when we don't follow Jesus. Luke adds this other story. The guy that says, uh, Jesus, let me just go say goodbye to my family. That seems like a really reasonable request. Let me go say goodbye to my family. Jesus says to him, look, um, nobody who puts their hand on the plow and then turns back, turns their head back, is fit for service in the kingdom of Christ. Jesus is harsh. Jesus is really harsh. I know we like to just, you know, focus on the loving Jesus who tells us how wonderful we are all the time. Jesus is harsh about these excuses. He does not accept them. And there's a lot of things that we could go into trying to understand why that is, but let's understand at least this. There is an urgency and a priority to Jesus' mission that we don't often get. This harvest is plentiful and it is present. It's waiting for workers right now. Not down the road, not in the future. Any of you have ever participated in farming, you know that the harvest is ready when it's ready. You can't harvest early. The crop will be green and it'll rot. You can't harvest late. It'll go to seed and start to lose all those wonderful heads of grain. The harvest is now. It's plentiful. It's present. Which really compels us, doesn't it, to ask why does Jesus keep turning people away? If he needs so much help, if it's so important, if it's so urgent, why does he keep turning people away? Well, here's something maybe we need to take away from this. Jesus does not compromise to boost the head count. This is a novel idea. Because I'll be honest with you, these days in staffing ministries, we will often settle for a warm body. We just need somebody to fill out that place on the form and, and be there. 
You just be that, pr- well, you just, well, it, w- yeah, we don't care if you're unqualified. We don't care if you're disinterested. You're a warm body, and we could put you there. And in the long run, this usually ends up being counterproductive. Now, I don't want to bar anybody from Christian service at any time, but in service to the kingdom, in, s- in the service of ministry, if you can't do it for the king, with some degree of passion and excellence, you're going to end up with something that uh, is not that helpful. And so we have people sometimes that um, do the ministry that they want to do rather than the ministry that the mission requires. And sometimes we have people who are up for anything. We talk to them about the mission. We talk to them about the ministry. I'll do anything you need right up until the point it starts to affect what they want. And then all of a sudden, this was a bad idea. You have people who engage the work of ministry as long as it is a minimal investment of my time and resources. And as long as you praise me endlessly for having made that sacrifice. If people who forego any aspiration of excellence because it's really about completing the program and not about serving the king. If people who commit to service but don't follow through. Sometimes they just don't show up at all. Sometimes they show up but they're not really there. And then of course you have an army of consultants. The ones who are more than happy to tell you how to do it, but never seem to get their hands dirty actually doing it. Jesus, it would seem, seeks sold-out followers with passion for his mission. And maybe it's because his mission is too important to be entrusted to anyone else. In fact, Jesus describes following him as difficult and dangerous. He's actually rather consistent on this point throughout all four of the Gospels. He talks about this discipleship is going to get you arrested. It's going to get you put on trial. It's going to bring you tribulation. You're going to be hated for my name. And by the way, don't forget to carry your cross. In other words... As a people manager, Jesus is in desperate need of a new marketing campaign. He's doing it all wrong. This is completely counterintuitive. The modern church, we have learned to specialize in turning ministry into easy, bite-sized pieces. We don't ask people to think missionally. We don't ask them to make major life commitments. Because we've been offering a version of kingdom that won't interfere with the rest of your life. We adjust the workload to suit our very low tolerance for difficulty. And I don't know if it's the message that we intended to send, but I can tell you the message that the church has been sending is that we are less concerned with the sea of lost souls around us than we are 
with burnout. Now, burnout's a real thing. And I want you to understand, uh, people do need self-care. People do need to set boundaries. They, they, they do need time away. They, they do need to have realistic expectations. Even Jesus needed these things. Even Jesus had to separate himself from the crowds, had to sep- even from the 12 sometimes, had to get away from all of it and refocus and, 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 and pull it back together. And we all have seasons that we go through, seasons of trial and difficulty in which uh, we need to let go of some things. And I can say, arguably, there have been a number of times in my life in ministry that I have, in fact, been at the receiving end of burnout. But can we just put this in perspective? That for most of Christian history, this is what burnout looked like. People who went to the flames rather than deny Jesus Christ. And we're fussing about how busy we are because we don't want ministry concerns to compete with the rest of life. Many hands make light work, we say. And it's true. But what Jesus says to us is there are not many hands. And there never are. There never are. He says the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. He doesn't say we're going to correct that problem. That's always going to be the problem. The need around us is always going to be greater than our human resources are uh, available to meet it. That's always going to be the case. Even in a perfect ministry, even a perfect ministry lacks for missional workers. That's, That's what Jesus tells us. His ministry is as perfect as a ministry is going to be, and he lacks for missional workers. That's gratifying to me in a way. Sort of helps make sense of the scenario that we often find ourselves in as a church, trying to staff all of these different programs and ministries. It's gratifying in a way because there's always somebody around who's prepared to tell you what you should have done in order to, in order to cultivate those volunteers. Make it easier. Pat them on the back more. Whatever, some combination of all of the above. We in the church, we ministry leaders, we have a recurring fantasy. A recurring fantasy about sign-up lists. We think that we're going we're to announce a need to you and put up a sign-up list, and a sign-up list has got to be filled. And it never is. There's never enough workers for the sheer potential of the harvest. And you know why that is? Jesus is telling us thousands or tens of thousands will listen to the message, hundreds will hear it, and dozens will actually follow Jesus. 
in every age and in every place, the kingdom possibilities will always outweigh the kingdom workforce. And so, yeah, we put upon ourselves and we put upon you a task that is greater than we are. Jesus says, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that God would send them because every ministry needs missional workers. People who will work for Jesus, who will work for the kingdom, who will work for righteousness, and they'll do it first, and they'll do it without compromise. And I know even as I say that, what's running through the back of our minds is, wow, that is probably too much to ask of people. That might be the problem. That might be the problem. Maybe this is why the Western church flounders in irrelevance while the church in China and Iran and Saudi Arabia and Mongolia and Cambodia and Mali and yes, Ukraine is flourishing, is growing by leaps and bounds. And it's not just because they're being persecuted. It's not just the pressure of persecution, although that does call attention to the gospel. It's about what real followers of Jesus are willing to do in order to see the world saved by the gospel. It's not easier. It's not more convenient. It is harder and it is more dangerous and it is completely worth it. Some things that we need to understand. If we really want to be, if we really want to be the gospel life-changing force in this community that we say we want to be, there's some things that we need to understand. And number one is, my comfort does not eclipse Christ's calling. Modern American Christianity is simply more oriented to comfort than it is to mission. We have cultivated a pseudo-discipleship that involves minimal risk, minimal effort, and minimal accountability. But Jesus says, there is no following me without denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following. There is no excuse reasonable enough to make it okay to put Jesus next in the priority list. We need to understand that worldly concerns do not eclipse Christ's kingdom. Of course, there are some worldly concerns that we encounter right now that are born out of the immorality of the age, and we, we know clearly that they are not worthy. But right now, all you need in order to have worldly concerns is to be reasonably informed and reasonably intelligent. Worldly concerns are cropping up every day. Here's what I want you to know. There is no eventuality, there is no outcome 
in which the kingdom of Jesus Christ does not prevail. And so his kingdom, regardless of what else is going on in the world, his kingdom is our first order of business. We seek the kingdom and the righteousness of Jesus Christ first. And finally, mammon does not eclipse Christ's mission. If Jesus is Lord, then his mission is our mission. And that mission will always be greater than our imagination, greater than our human resources, greater than our physical resources. It will always be greater because the, the, the bulk of the world will still be turning their back on Jesus. The problem is not that life is too busy or too complicated for us to stay focused on the mission. The problem is that we have allowed the mission to compete with the complications of life. Jesus is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. We cannot squeeze the way, the truth, and the life into the margins. It is either front and center or nothing at all. There is no activity, no preoccupation, no career, no work, no focus, no priority, no security, no circumstance or treasure that comes before this work. To share the gospel of Jesus Christ. To lift the broken out of the depravity of the world. To give hope and purpose and life and salvation. And to make disciples of all people. Baptizing them and teaching them to obey the one and only true God.